You're listening to Grow Yourself Up, a weekly mental health podcast hosted by Kath Cunahan. I'm a psychotherapist, writer, and speaker working in private practice in London. I specialize in the impact of our own childhood on our parenting and how we can heal and integrate our childhood trauma, wounding, and stress so that we can inhabit our full adult selves. Join us each week as we talk about all things growing ourselves up, how we can tend to ourselves in our parenting, generational healing, and overcoming the impacts of childhood trauma. Together, we will become more self-compassionate, connected, authentic, resilient, and heart-centered, so we can live our own full and beautiful lives. As a listener of this podcast, you're welcome to come over and join the Facebook group. So search on Facebook for Grow Yourself Up. It's a private Facebook group of all the listeners. And did you know there are journal prompts that go along with every episode? So sign up for the journal prompts on kathcunahan.com or go to my Instagram, kathcunahan, and sign up at the link in the bio there. And you will get my newsletter, Nurture, Heal, Grow, which contains all the journal prompts. Looking forward to seeing you in the Facebook group. The podcast is produced each week by the wonderful Audio Cafe. Thanks for being here. Hi, welcome back. It's episode 22 of Grow Yourself Up. And today I am joined by my first guest. Really, really, really excitingly. And, um, it, it's the wonderful Tamu Thomas. Um, I found Tamu on Instagram and I love her work and, um, all that she embodies. And she's going to be talking to us today about how our own people pleasing hampers our work. And she also talks about her own journey as being a mother. So let me give you a bit of background about Tamu. All the details about where to find her on Instagram and her web, uh, web page are in the show notes. And, um, also at the end of, um, I'll mention them at the end. Okay. So Tamu Thomas is an emotional wellbeing coach, a writer, a workshop facilitator, podcaster, and nonlinear movement practitioner who helps overfunctioning, overworking, high achieving women fall in love with themselves so they can make powerful choices about how they live, love, and work. Tamu's work combines somatics, social work, and spirituality with science and soulful systems. She is person-centered, evidence-based, trauma-informed, human-paced, nurturing, intuitive, loving, and playful. Tamu's holistic approach to supporting the bodies, minds, and experience of her clients makes her work nurturing, deep, and unique. Just like her, Tamu's work is informed by her background of 16 years in social work, somatic coach training, her love of behavioral neuroscience and polyvagal theory, positive psychology, spirituality, and joy. Tamu combines these modalities to create a multifaceted body of work that helps her clients stop using anxiety as a productivity tool and stop normalizing burnout. Tamu's work helps her clients understand who they are so they may begin to tend to their needs, feel safe in their bodies, befriend themselves, and begin to enjoy who they are. Tamu supports her clients and workshop attendees understand themselves as valuable and worthy of caring for themselves. This enables them to prioritize their own well-being and life satisfaction alongside success and achievement. Her mission is to help women enhance how they live, love, and work by recovering from their addiction to toxic productivity. And um, I know that many of you listening are perfectionists and as, particularly as perfectionists, burnout is often one of the consequences because we push and we push and we push and boom and bust cycles are therefore uh, quite common in many of our lives, mine included. Um, okay, so let's get into the discussion and I really hope that you find it um, valuable and there will be more on um, people pleasing boundaries and parenting um, next week. Can I just say, I'm really delighted that you invited me and I am so honoured that I am your first guest for many reasons. I think you are just a delightful human being. I love the work you share so generously on Instagram. I'm really enjoying um, your podcast. I've got so many. I've been so busy, like Fridays a day I listen to podcasts and stuff. I haven't had the opportunity. So I'm looking forward to catching up with um, growing myself up via your podcast. And um, yeah, it's a real delight for me to be here with you. Thank you. Thank you, Tamu. And I also want to let the listeners know that Tamu, 
was someone who pushed me to finally um, actually launch Grow Yourself Up. I think you know that I think I shared in one of the episodes that I bought the microphone in 2020 and she was someone who like helped push me like over that hill basically so I'm really grateful for that okay so we're going to cover a couple of topics now and we're going to start with um Tammy's got a lot of wisdom to share so I'm going to start with asking her how have you grown yourself up in motherhood do you want to tell us a bit about your motherhood about what you thought it would be like what it has been like and um, how you've had to grow yourself up through that gap, I guess. Do you know what? I think there are some people who are natural mothers. They, it comes naturally to them. It's not a challenge. Or not, not that it's not a challenge, that their natural way of being enables them to manage that challenge and all of that kind of stuff. And I would say I'm that person. Um, I've always been a mother, even before I became a mother myself. I I was a mother in childhood. Um, I was always gathering people, tending to people. My capacity for care is huge and it needs lots of boundaries because that big capacity to care can very easily become people pleasing. So, um, I was prepared to be a mother and, um, Although when I was younger, I wouldn't have been able to articulate it in this way. I was prepared to be a mother to the child I have. My conditioning definitely played a big role. And prior to actually having a child myself, I had all these ideas and notions about what I would be like and what things would be like and expectations I had. But my background is social work. And my social work career really has shaped how I parent. Um, my mum had, there were big gaps between me, my brother and my sister. So I'm seven years older than my brother. I'm 15 years older than my sister. And I really saw the evolution of my mum's parenting. So I really saw what um, emotional containment, maturity and security did for her as a parent so her parenting style with me was different to how she parented my brother and very different to how she parented my sister and I saw the impact of that and I had lots of uh experiences where I was like well that's not the type of parent I want to be this is the type of parent I want to be so that was like really deeply implanted within me what did happen though Actually, so one thing I had to let go of is I had to let go of I don't want you to make the same mistakes I did and parenting from that place because that was very prevalent in some of my parenting. And once I was able to look at my daughter as a human being in her own right, not somebody to be protected from my mistakes, things um, changed. So that it was quite natural. And but but what I what where I did grow up in terms of my parenting or how becoming a parent helped me grow myself up, I had to become less concerned about the opinion of other people. I had to become less concerned and less influenced by other people's thoughts on child rearing. So um there were so uh, not necessarily not even not necessarily not from my extended family but my friends had some of them um unconsciously maybe sometimes consciously but i'm choosing to believe it was unconsciously um were quite judgmental in places about my parenting style okay. because as far as i'm concerned i picked my battles wisely And the vast majority of children's behavior is natural, normal, essential. It's part of their developmental stage. It's what they're supposed to be doing. And I don't think I should be um, telling off, enforcing boundaries that actually are um, actually the child is behaving according to how they're supposed to be behaving right now. Um, And I know how. Um, things like, uh, being good and sharing and all of that kind of stuff. I know how that, and being so sensitive, being a cry baby. I know how those narratives, very innocent narratives played into me being a people pleaser. 
um, and that's not what I wanted for my child. And being a people pleaser, I, I had to face the demon of letting people down or not living up to the impression I thought people had of me and choosing to parent my way rather than being influenced by people who thought I was too lax or spoiling my child. And to be honest with you, one of the decisions I made way before I even had a fertilized egg was that any child I have is going to be spoiled, Um, is going to be spoiled. Really? That's a really beautiful thing. Yeah. Tell us about that because that sounds very special, actually. Well, people think when spoiling a child means they're going to be a brat. For me, spoiling a child, because if, if you think about what um, people judge as spoiling a child, it's being indulgent. It is, um, people will call it mollycoddling. And I think we come from such an unhealthy Victorian stance in our parenting that actual genuine connection and care can be seen to be uh, mollycoddling. Um, so I was like, I, I'm going to... Um, and, and it wasn't like about material things. I'm going to be available to have conversations with you. If you want to, as much as it gets on my nerves sometimes, and I know I've got more capacity to do it as a single parent, if you want to get in bed with me, you can get in bed with me. If we, if you want to snuggle on the sofa, we can snuggle on the sofa. You cannot sit on my lap anymore because you're bigger than me. You're taller than me. Like <laughs> you are a bigger human being than I am, but we can absolutely snuggle. If you want to hold my hand whilst we're walking to the shops, you can hold my hand. I really was very, very passionate and very keen to indulge my child's emotional, mental, physical whims. I was very keen from the jump. I don't bring my child up. I love her up. Yes, That's the sort of parenting I offer. And it's not indulging stuff that uh, in a way that prevents her from developing the emotional skills she needs, from developing resilience, etc. We do all of that. But for the most part, I want to role model and hold space for a really tender, nourishing relationship. And that has what's happened, you know, Sometimes my daughter wants to share stuff with me. I'm like, I, I don't even want, I don't want to know that. Like, I don't want to know. I don't want to know who you fancy. I don't want to know all of that stuff because in my heart, you're still four and you're telling me you're a young woman. Um, but I make myself available. I listen. I clench my bum cheeks and I hold on for dear life. But I just wanted to create a parenting relationship where my child feels safe to be who she is. Yes. Tammy, that's really beautiful. And I think that, um, the way you, um, the way you said you, you wanted to spoil her, the way that I hear that or the way that I translate that is that you really wanted to create a secure attachment and that you were going to really be loving. Because what I hear is that you've, you've really, um, just focused on the importance of the relationship and nurturing that and that, um, being really emotional, really emotionally available to her is, is really important. And I know that lots of the, the listeners will resonate with that. Um, and how hard it is. So I'm, I'm glad that you talked about how sometimes you have to. Yeah, I'm still a human being. There are times when I snap. There are times when I'm like, no, not right now. But from a very young age, I've let my daughter know I'm a human being. Yeah. Like when she was three, we were in a shop. We were in Tesco Express. I had my briefcase because um, uh, at the time I was a local authority social worker and I had the massive, great big laptop in my bag with the security, this, that and the other. And I had a shopping basket in the other hand and she was asking me for something. And I turned around and I looked at her and she looked at me and she said, you've only got one pair of hands. And I was like, but she had to know, like I have only got one pair of hands and she could see both, like both hands, the one pair of hands were full. So I had to let her know that from an early age, she knew if she came into the living room and I was praying or meditating because I would wake up a bit earlier so that um, I could do that. If she woke up earlier and saw what I was doing, she would get her coloring or get a little toy out or whatever it was, or just sit beside me and uh, I would do what I'm doing because I don't believe in motherhood being martyrdom. Yes. I don't believe that we should operate parenting in a way whereby we give up every ounce of ourselves for our children. Our children don't need that. They don't want that. Our children need parents 
who role model what it is to put yourself first too, not over and above because they're totally dependent. But if I'm constantly sacrificing myself and running myself ragged, I'm teaching my child that that's how life goes. And as far as I'm concerned, that is not how life goes. And I didn't want to role model that for her. And I respect that I'm a human being. Good. I'm so happy to hear you say that because the journey of healing from codependence um, when you're a mother is really complex because often when you're codependent, you've been taught to value everyone else's needs above yourself. And so um, yeah, some of my listeners have struggled with this idea of throwing yourself on the altar of motherhood and trying to get it all perfect. And then that runs you completely ragged and you can't do it perfect anyway. And then you feel worse because of the shame. But really it comes right back to our own needs and cherishing ourselves, like really cherishing ourselves. And so it's so nice to hear you. And remembering those years of dependence are finite. When you're in it, it feels like it's forever. But I'm work, I work with so many women who get to their middle years and don't have a clue about who they are, about what makes them feel alive. They don't know how to love themselves because it's been a a moment by moment process of unloving themselves because they have embodied an idea that they can't love themselves and love their children and their partner simultaneously. Everything has to be given to them. And if, if anything, they are left with the dregs and they get to a point where their youngest child is in secondary school. One child's gone off to university or the child is of an age where they are um, reaching more and more levels of independence. And then they start putting pressure on all their other relationships because they haven't had the opportunity to cultivate a relationship with themselves. Their whole lives have revolved around um, people pleasing their children, their partner, their work, everything else. So toxic productivity in motherhood, toxic productivity in relationships, toxic productivity in the worst in the workplace, which really ruptures the relationship with self so you don't know who you are anymore yeah and then I have women I'm working with where there are lots of pressures in their relationships with their friends because now they're transferring their attention to their friendship relationships and are being quite demanding of their friendship relationships simply because they're now looking to their friends to fill a void that was previously masked because the void was always there, they're now looking to other external relationships to fill a void that was being masked by motherhood previously. I say, look at that void now, find ways to slowly, slowly fill that void whilst you're mothering, so that when your children are of a stage where they're no longer wholly dependent on you, you actually have a sense of who you are and what you need from life. Yes. And that recovery, that, that healing of the relationship with ourselves and, and like all our parts, we can start now. And it really starts with honoring all those voices and starting to just deepen into awareness of our needs and believe like what you've been saying. Um, I've heard you saying quite a lot recently about the fact that we have to decide we're worthy. No one else is suddenly going to turn around and say, right, here's your big tick. Finally, you've got that gold star. Off you go. You can meet your needs. We are the ones who have to decide no, you're not going to, I'm not taking you to the swimming pool now or I can't commit to that. I have to stay at home and rest now for myself or whatever it is, or I have to cook myself food now while you watch TV, whatever the million ways we need to meet our needs are, but no one else can really do that for us. And I'm loving the messages that you're sharing around that actually. And you know what? With that, we give a gift to our children. Yes. We don't think we do, but we give a gift to our children. So me living my life and being a parent in that way fast forward uh when my daughter last year when my daughter was 14 she had been invited to various places during the half term so it was exactly a year ago and she said to me I feel bad but I can't go because I'm really tired and I need some rest otherwise I'm going to go back to school just as tired as when we finished the half term And she was saying, I feel bad to let so-and-so down. And I said, but, you know, you're not letting so-and-so down. You are honoring yourself. And you're saying to that person, 
I want to be around you when I'm at my best. Yeah. I don't want to be dragging myself to be with you and I'm not there in my full energy and we're not having the nice time we could have because I'm shattered. So at the tender age of 14, this young person I am loving up, I am growing up, is already making powerful choices about herself. So she went and she did things during the day with friends, but there were no sleepovers because there's no sleep in sleepovers. (laughs) There is just no sleep in sleepovers. And she knows that. And so she was able to find a way of being able to spend time with her friends and recharge herself the way she needs to. That that wasn't my suggestion. She came and she bounced the idea off me because she was like, oh gosh, I'm going to let them down. But ultimately she knew she had to honor herself. That came from years and years of her seeing me. Yes, you're modeling that. And we know from from research actually that children learn much more from what we do than from what we say. Exactly. And so what a beautiful gift. Like well, that's just mm. actually warms my heart a lot that at a, four, a 14 year old, because also teenage years, is, you're so vulnerable to what everyone thinks. So to really put yourself first is wonderful. And I wanted to pick up on something you said a bit earlier about how in your mothering, you had to let go of what other people thought and to really um, parent, you were honoring that you were growing her up with love which is lovely. I love that. We're in the love revolution now. (laughs) So I'm delighted to hear that. (laughs) But tell us, because actually I think you were ahead of your time, but um, tell us how did you, on a sort of a practical level, soothe yourself or deal with some situations where, because it's painful and, and from a nervous system perspective, very uncomfortable to withstand that like pull for people pleasing. How did you kind of manage some of that? At the time, Kath, I'll be honest with you, I did what I now know to be dissociating. I didn't know what my nervous system was. I didn't have a clue about resourcing myself. I was, um, I was, when people talk about like boundaries of steel, I didn't realize they were boundaries of steel, but they were. And what I will say to you is, I don't recommend what I experienced because I shut people out. And I shut myself in. Okay. So I didn't do it then from a healthy place. I just got to this point where I was so full of rage. I didn't even know it was rage at the time because I would never allow myself to actually contact that space. I was so full of rage. And I just thought, I don't want to do what you're doing. So I'm just doing what I'm doing and I'm totally ignoring. And when I feel your judgment, I'm just checking out of here. My body is here. But my spirit has left because that's all I could do. So when I started to learn about resourcing myself and taking care of myself and what I need as a person, even this that I'm doing immediately now, even subtle things like putting my hand on my chest and feeling my heartbeat and connecting with my heart and touching myself in a way that feels tender, are some of the ways I retrospectively resourced, nourished and tended to myself. So that journey of tending to myself really began round about 2016. I think that the age 38 is like an age of reckoning. And there was so much stuff that I couldn't keep down anymore. It was bubbling up in the uh, to the surface when I was 38. So I started to really look at uh, my quote unquote shadows, I started to look at the parts of myself I had distanced myself from, that I had buried, I had pushed down parts of myself. Um, I kind of felt like um, my alter ego was Ursula from um, The um, Little Mermaid. (laughs) I felt like if I really allowed myself to be myself fully, I would be this big gargantuous sea monster that takes people's voices away and does this and that and the other. So you were scared of your power? I was terrified of my power, terrified. And what I realized is that I was terrified of people's reaction to my power. So I then started chopping bits off, splintering, fragmenting myself so I could make myself small. So my analogy was like, Tam, you're walking around life in a pair of too tight, skinny jeans. We all know skinny jeans that are too tight are damn uncomfortable because skinny jeans are quite uncomfortable in the first place. (laughs) 
And I was like, you need bigger jeans. So I consciously and deliberately set about making friends with, with new people. Because some of the thing is, the people I was around before, they were so used to who I was at 17, 25, 30, they were finding it difficult. It's like they could see me, but their nervous system could tell that my nervous system had changed. Yeah. And there was a clash. It was a bit like, I'm seeing you, but you're a, you're a stranger. And I'll be honest, like I got into a bit of a judgmental space, like, if you can't handle me, then da da da. But it was very much like, well, you're not keeping up with me kind of thing. So I thought, well, instead of me struggling, I'm not letting, I know these relationships are relationships I have for life. There were so many and still are so many beautiful elements of those relationships. I knew that I needed to form relationships with people who could accept me as I am now. Yeah. With people who are, because uh, most of my friends work um, as um, employed. So they don't have the same experience as somebody who's self-employed or an entrepreneur. So I thought I need to make friends with people who are doing a similar thing who are um, curious about things that are similar to me so that I can have these really geeky conversations about the nervous system or about ways we want to evolve and grow and shape the coaching industry or the way we want to be able to serve our customers and also the things we experience. Because when you do this work, you have coaching, you have mentors, you have therapy, you've got all of this stuff going on to help you build self-awareness and also take action that is in alignment with who you are now I wanted to be able to have conversations with people who were there so I wasn't having to explain and justify myself so that really helped me realize actually it's not just that my friends were um, experiencing me differently and I was experiencing them differently I had expectations of them based on what was going on in my inner world but I wasn't sharing what was going on in my inner world because I was fearing judgment so I needed to cultivate relationships that could meet me where I am and expand and have the conversations I wasn't able to have elsewhere and those relationships where I was able to have those conversations about business and development, etc., they're lovely, but I can't knock at their house uninvited and just get into bed because I'm knackered and wake up and there'll be a meal provided. And those are the sorts of relationships I've got with people who aren't in the same space as I am in relation to talking about the nervous system yes. and whatever else. Um, and similar for them with me, they can come round to my house open my fridge, put food on the stove and warm it up. And we can have a conversation and laugh about stuff that happened in college. And I wouldn't have that conversation with my newer friends. So it was about realizing one group of friends or one person is not the unlimited source of all. Yeah. I am the unlimited source of all because I work in partnership with the divine and these relationships it's not about being transactional, but our connection is in different places. Yes. So let me honor that connection instead of unconsciously make demands because I'm not meeting a need and I'm projecting it into, into the, friendship. the friendship. And also what you've really highlighted is that we have to take responsibility for ourselves in relationship and that it's it, what you referenced earlier about when you dissociate and you just cut people out. That's a, that's a much more childlike coping strategy that many of us have used where we can't kind of take the heat of actually discussing and, and maybe some conflict around how we're going to have the friendship go. And so I love the way you've painted that picture of, of, of growing yourself up in that arena, actually of noticing that you had needs that couldn't be met in some of your existing friendships, but that that doesn't mean that those friendships have no worth and that they would need to be thrown away. It was just that you can exactly. keep those relationships for, um, for what they do offer and celebrate that. And I think that's such a powerful thing to recognize um, in motherhood because a lot of my clients talk about how they spend time sometimes with people now who are not really their friends. They're, they're kind of their mom friends, but they don't know them that well. And then they get sometimes crossed with some of their older friends because they don't understand or they're not having the same experience or they have older children. And so then you, you're not in the same life stage. And really taking responsibility for ourselves and all our friendships is quite complex actually so I love the way you've painted that trajectory for us Ooh. and I guess I want to also say to the listeners that 
maybe you're in that stage of dissociating or judging people and you know that's the place you are in your process and that's also okay because we have to kind of experiment with stuff before we get to a place of really taking responsibility and seeing what we're doing i've had something like this with my sisters i've learned so much from yeah. it and i've had a similar process with my sisters actually where um I really had to notice what I was expecting from them and what I was bringing and what, how some of it, all of us together, because our mothers did, were trying to get too much from each other actually in some way. Mm. And we had to renegotiate those boundaries in adult life to see that each of us had to prioritize our nuclear families now because we've all got young children, but we've learned to be in relationship in a much more adult way that's really nourishing and lovely. I mean, in touch wood, hope we don't have a fight tomorrow because sometimes we do that as well. And then it all goes <laughs> pear-shaped. But um but that that's so normal and you have that healthy other adult place to come back to like we never stay in that healthy adult place <laughs> but when you've practiced being there you know your way back yes you, you know that you know it's there and hopefully most of the time you remember <laughs> exactly exactly and you know in what you're saying it's, it's just not fair because what happens is uh in that responsibility piece it's not fair and to use like, and you know, language we all will understand really easy. It's not your fault either. Yeah. We have grown up in a society that conditions us to neglect our responsibility and blame instead. Yes. So instead of looking like, oh my goodness, I messed up. I could have done that differently because, um, we are taught that anything other than being nice, anything other than being good, anything other than being positive is bad. And if it is bad, you are bad. So then we get into that shame spiral. I'm bad. They think I'm a bad person. Everything I do is bad. This is the same thing I did in 1997. And I did it again in 2005. You become shrouded in shame. Yes. And then because shame likes secrecy and shame makes people feel so uncomfortable, you're then ashamed of being ashamed. So then you're doubling down on the shame because we're also taught that shame is the way we remedy bad behavior. But shame is not the way we remedy bad behavior. Compassion remedies shame. Uh, empathy remedies shame. And when you start to, what I learn is when I started to offer myself compassion, when I started to be empathetic with myself, when I started to forgive myself for not knowing what I didn't know when I didn't know yes. it, I was able to extend that to the people I'm in relationship with. And it also had an impact on my work because uh, something I've been talking about a lot and you and I have touched on um, earlier on is the way people pleasing can undermine our work. Yes, massively. Because I talk about toxic productivity all the time. It's like my, my pet topic. And as I sit and explore and discuss with friends and observe the behavior of my clients and people I see around me and conversations that arise from whether it's something I've posted on social media or a podcast or whatever, what I realized was, huh, toxic productivity is a manifestation of people pleasing. Because people pleasing says, I'm not good enough as I am, so I'm going to prove myself. I am going to create an illusion of who I am to manipulate you into thinking I'm wonderful so you can tell me I'm great and that can give me a sense of worth. And that's what we do in our workplaces as well. So in work, we tolerate, and I'm, you know, I'm just going to use really plain language. We tolerate bad behavior. Yeah. We tolerate bad behavior from managers and we don't advocate for, for ourselves, for ourselves because we don't want to be seen as a troublemaker, not realizing that actually having a healthy conversation enables you to share with your manager this is my job description or with yourself when you're self-employed. These are my values and this is the best way I can deliver it. It's within the um, guidance. It's within the code of conduct and all of that. But what's happening right now is running me ragged and I'm not being, I'm not able to operate in, um, in the best way I possibly can. It looks like being a self-employed person. So we're service-based business people. We offer a service. And I think that people who do therapy, healing work, coaching or whatever, we are high functioning codependents. Hopefully the vast majority of us are in recovery. Yes. But it means then that 
we are so focused on the fact that we can help and that we've got the tools, the skills, the resources, the experience that we lose track of who we are here to serve. So we enter into relationships with clients who are not a match for what we are offering. So then we have to shrink and make ourselves small. We believe we have to shrink and make ourselves small to match the energy of the person sitting in front of us. And we think, I've said yes now, so I need to tolerate this now, rather than actually having conversations with our clients and saying, well, actually, this is what we contracted on. This is the service I'm providing. I'm noticing that you are unwilling to take responsibility. And I want to have a conversation about that so we can look at a fairer distribution of power. Yeah, We don't have those conversations and not necessarily in that way, um, but we don't have those conversations. We end up tolerating, making ourselves small and then um, having uh, um, resentment in the relationship we have with our clients. And then we're not talking to the people we really want to talk to. We're not serving the people we really want to serve And then again, we start getting into the dialogue of, I don't matter, I'm not enough, people don't see my value, because we're not showing up in our value, because we've got ourselves tangled in relationships, in client relationships, where we now believe we have to show up in a particular way, because of the way that person is operating. Yeah. When we can identify our pleasing behaviors, we can start to look at what the root of that behavior is. So me, it's Ursula. Well, if I speak really powerfully, I'm going to take people's voices away because I'm going to be like Ursula. Well, what is the um, illuminated side of Ursula? Ursula knew exactly who she was. Yeah. She didn't pretend. She knew exactly who she was. She knows exactly how powerful she is. She knows that she intimidates people. When I own that part of Ursula... I can have a look at the parts I need to address so that I'm able to engage with people and share who I am in a manner that is safe and where people feel safe enough to be brave. And I also need to be very clear about who I am, what I represent and how powerful I am. So people choose to work with me because they see that in themselves and they want to be in a coaching relationship where they have permission to behave in that way. Bending down, and and, uh, this isn't meant to be judgmental, but bending down to make yourself smaller to match the energy of somebody is back-breaking work. It's better that you let that person go so they can find somebody that works in that domain so you can focus on your zone of genius. My work is not for beginners. If you are a beginner, you're going to be really triggered by my work. My work is not for people who have unresolved trauma. I'm from a social work background. I'm trauma informed. But coaching work, the work of growth and the challenge that's involved in um, coaching can feel like an attack if you are still in the midst of your, uh, you know, you still got that trauma energy stuck inside your body. I'm going to feed into narratives and patterns that may have caused that trauma in the first place. So if I if I'm not showing up as I am, like the illuminated version of Ursula, then I'm not giving myself the best opportunity to operate in my fullness. Yes, and when you are operating in your fullness, you invite all your clients into their own fullness. And I think that the important thing about Ursula also is that it's, a, it's, an, it's an environment of abundance. So you being in your light and in your power doesn't mean someone else can't be in their light and their power. There's enough light and power. We all are a light light. We all are light power. We all have our own sources of that. Yeah. And I love what you said about people pleasing and how we accept bad behavior because I don't think everyone on this listener is a, is an entrepreneur or, or has their own business, but, um, Many people in employment also accept um, bad behavior from bosses, um, gaslighting from colleagues, and all of that, because often in our workplaces, we recreate our family in some way. So we have our dysfunctional family patterns playing out. 
you know, people become our parents and, and the same dynamics happen where we think we need to be good, perfect and nice. And so often, actually, when you've been most gaslit or your boss is really critical, what often happens is you double down on your own productivity. You think, oh, I can't touch that shame. I've got to be much more productive and more perfect. And so you get yourself into a cycle where it's just kind of all downhill and that's, it's subconscious. So we're not typically aware that our shame is being touched until we've done a lot of work. We just think I've got this wrong. I'm bad. Yeah. And so um, notice if any of you are listening, notice if that comes up for you in your own work and what gets triggered and how your own family dynamics may play out in your workplace. And that's often what keeps us trapped. And to add to that, it's not limited to, work that you you know work that you're um contracted to do it can also manifest as taking it upon yourself to be the person that um becomes a buddy or mentor for new employees it can also manifest as being the person that everybody automatically assumes will organize birthday cards birthday cakes baby showers leaving gifts leaving gifts it means that you then become the default carer in the workplace. So you then take on caring responsibilities in addition to overworking to prove that you are able to work well. So I remember being a social worker and being the person that would be the buddy for newly qualified social workers and being the person that people would default would sort out the birthday cards and the cake or whatever the case may be. And because of that maladaptive wonky programming my um reaction because it wasn't a response it happened below the level of consciousness was that I now have to really overwork so people don't think that me being a buddy and me going off and sorting out Christmas lunches and all of that kind of stuff was impacting my because this is the one that social workers are always lambasted with impacting my time management yeah not taking into consideration that the 37 and a half hours a week we were allocated to work that we were paid for were not sufficient for the job anyway. So that already was an insufficient amount of time. Take on top of that, going to meetings and appointments with newly qualified social workers, talking them through things, um, allowing them to accompany you on your appointments and whatever else and explaining things to them. Then phoning up restaurants to make a booking for your team of 12 people or whatever the case may be, who's vegetarian, who needs gluten-free, who's allergic to nuts. All of that takes its toll. And then what happens? You go home and your home life gets the dregs at the bottom of the barrel of your energy and then you're wondering why you're snapping at your partner why you don't have the patience and care you'd like to have for your children it all has a really massive impact and something I could have done if I was able to be resourced enough and if I at that time had known about myself enough I would have been able to say With this workload, I can take on one newly qualified social worker and I think we should start a rota for organising the cards, the leavings, the X, Y, Z, because I don't have the capacity to do it. I didn't do that because everything was so built up inside Mm -hmm. that I believed if I was to speak I would be like a fire-breathing dragon and then people would think that I'm aggressive, I can't handle things, etc. It would have it would have come from a really emotive place and it would not have been productive. Mm. And when you're a people pleaser who really likes people to like you, conducting yourself in a way that that you believe will alienate people feels somatically like death. Yeah. You avoid it at all costs. But if I had known then what I know now, I would have been able to have a healthy conversation. I would have been able to take my 100% responsibility and leave people to take their own responsibility instead of overworking to try and preempt what people's reaction would be and conduct myself in a way where I could try and elicit the most positive response um, possible. And I know I'm talking, 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 but this also relates to the. Um, if you're a self-employed person, the products you offer 
and how you price your offers, yes. the money you want to make. As an employed person, this also impacts how you um, reflect and um, analyze the work you've done so that you can present yourself in a manner that is effective and really clearly demonstrates your worth to support you asking for a promotion or a pay rise. You stop being scared and thinking, are they going to think I'm showing off? It's going to look like I'm trying to take credit for stuff I haven't done, etc. And you can get really, really clear about who you are and what you offer and operate from that place rather than feeling like you're walking around life with your skirt tucked in your tights. And I love what you just said about, I mean, the, what you would have done differently if you'd, if you'd known it, because as you say that, it sounds relatively simple. It, it, you know, it doesn't involve you kind of going to do some sort of big dance. It was really about, um, honoring yourself and knowing that you didn't have to do all these extra bits and bobs on top of a ready job that was probably actually 60 hours a week or something. Exactly. And what would you say? Cause I'm noticing we're coming towards the end of our time. What would you, and I, I want to give you time to talk about um, your programs and where people can find you, but what would you say has been the biggest thing um, in terms of, because I, I, and I know there's way too much to go into to give us a detailed picture, but the bridge from um, where you were operating to, to where, where you are now, what resourcing has helped you the most? It's such a patchwork, but I would say the biggest has been feeling safe to connect with my body and feeling safe enough to explore what my felt sense, what the sensations in my body are telling me. Because before I would contact a sensation thing, oh my gosh, that means I'm going to get really angry or I'm going to get really sad. I'm going to get anxious and I would bury it. So the biggest resource has been slowing down, getting present, contacting the emotions and the sensations and seeing what they're about instead of automatically assuming the worst. Because the thing that has got me um, to build the bridge is that most of the time my feelings are saying, Tamu, this isn't right. It needs to change. And when I obey that feeling that I'm able to then make changes and change my mind before I would be worried about changing my mind and altering things because I had this notion that authenticity is being exactly the same all the time. And this enables me, you know, as we inhale, we exhale, we're constantly taking in and letting go. It helped me feel safer to let go of things so I could take in things according to where I am right now and the data I have right now. Yeah, and the, and we're allowed to change our minds. We're allowed to be different. And I just want to share just very quickly because people think, well, how? The first thing was literally that heart um, hand on my chest and asking my heart, what do I need? And waiting. Sometimes there would be a response. Sometimes there wouldn't be a response. Sometimes the response was um, tears. Sometimes the response was, you need to get to the gym today, love. Um, just allowing myself to build a relationship where my body felt safe to communicate with me. And I know when we talk like that, it's like we're saying our body's some entity over there, but we make our bodies an entity over there because we separate ourselves from them. Yeah. So it was like really reintroducing myself to my body because we talk about us not being able to trust our bodies. We build this notion that we can't trust our bodies. Well, guess what? When we build a relationship where we can't trust our bodies, our bodies can't trust us either. So they don't necessarily automatically, our, our inner knowing, our intuition, that felt sense, that deep wisdom doesn't necessarily respond to us immediately because we too need to build a trusting relationship with our bodies because we have let them down time and time again. Literally just that, that hand and, okay, if you don't want to say anything now, I'll come back. Yeah. I'm not going to disappear. I am going to come back and actually coming back and cultivating that relationship has been the most profound healing and supportive experience um, I've ever had ever. And it took me 40 years to get to that place. I'm now 45 and I'm now in a position where I'm able to do that without wincing, without wanting to flick myself off. But it took time. 
And um, one of the things that enabled me to be able to do it is I didn't give myself an arbitrary time scale. I made peace with the fact that it would take as long as it takes. And it's as simple as that. And it does take a long time. And the um, finding the willingness is the first bit, but then really being willing to always turn to ourselves and to become our own best friend and support ourselves. Indeed. Yeah, I, I agree with you about that being one of the most beautiful things. And I wanted to say to the listeners, one of the things that Tammy talked about, about how she wouldn't let her rage come out because she thought people wouldn't like her. She wouldn't let anything else come out. Many of us have learned in our families that we are only acceptable when we have like the good range of feelings. So like we're allowed to be happy and joyful and pleased, but, but only in like a manageable small band. We can't have any rage, boredom, apathy, um, anger, sadness. All of that is seen as, um, if you think about it from when you were a child, you know, you might have been sent away or the, the attachment relationship got broken because your parent might have said, don't be what you said, a crybaby, don't behave like that. If you're going to behave like that, then we can't do this. So there's, there's a lack of, um, um, experience and also of acceptance around our full emotional lives. And actually you can be lovable. You are lovable. Even when you have experienced rage, anger, um, boredom, all of those things. And I think a huge, huge part of this is allowing our full emotional expression and not thinking that means we're a bad person. We are a person who's got our whole, like I imagine it like a circle of emotions and everything is in there, not just the top half, which is all like the sunny stuff. So I really want you to hear that. Now, now Tammy, can you tell us about where we can find you, like your website and your Instagram and about any programs that you're offering or masterclasses that might be useful and that this audience might like? Um, the best place to come and find me is uh, the community centre, <laughs> otherwise known as Instagram. Um, and my Instagram handle is at live360, L-I-V-E-T-H-R-E-E-S-I-X-T-Y. Um, that's the best place to come and find me. Um, if you sign up to my uh, mailing list, I share information about what I'm doing there and um, some helpful stuff on there as well. I could absolutely talk about like programs and offerings I have, but I think uh, bearing in mind what I said about, you know, rebuilding the relationship with my body and getting to know myself, come on over to my Instagram, come on over to my mailing list, get to know me, and then you will find out about my offers and see whether any of them um, appeal to you. Well, I can recommend Tammy's uh, programs and also her, um, her, her newsletter and her Substack. And lots of um, wonderful uh, truth bombs on her Instagram and lovely lives as well. <laughs> so head on over. And Tammy, I wanted to say thank you so much for your time. I'm putting my hand on my heart because I've been very touched by your work. Thank you. And it's really joyful to be sitting here with you. Thank you for giving up this time to be here. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to Grow Yourself Up hosted by Kath Cunahan. We'll be back next week with a new episode supporting you to better understand and tend to yourself for more heart-centered, connected, authentic, and resilient living. Listener.